Oh God. Oh my God. I'm not going to be able to pronounce this. Come on. Let's see what your French For Forgive does. me. I don't know anything about French. Let me try. I'll destroy it. Femme? It wouldn't be piquet, right? Is French? Is there a quay or is it k? Piquet. Femme piquet, paun serpent. I'm sorry, everyone. That was terrible. Today, we're changing it up and talking about visual art, specifically the work of Kahende Wiley, who was one of my Black Beauty highlights in August. I found really kick-ass descriptions of his work, like eight different pieces, I think. What you never find. Yeah, you never find that. I mean, <laughs> I've covered other visual artists, and this particular website just hasn't come up, but I've covered Edmonia Lewis, Augusta Savage, Joshua Johnston, and Mitavo Warwick Fuller. And I found, like, some really basic descriptions of their works, but, like, Especially when I think about somebody like Mitavo Warwick Fuller, she was also called the Sculptor of Horrors. And I'm like, man, I would love to see her stuff. You know, it's really hard because she did a lot of work based on mythology and mm -hmm. it was a really abstract, some of that stuff. And so mm -hmm. it's going to hit you more to be able to touch that. Well, it as a blind would. person. And have you, before we get into Kahende, when I was in college, I had to take some humanities courses. Yeah, I took two. Yes. Did you ever have to do the thing where you had to like write about different paintings and stuff? Yeah, they had an assignment like that. And of course, it had to be modified for me. I chose to do something else. And I'm I actually jealous. took an art class <laughs> and I had to do um, an assignment with that again, talking about somebody's artwork. Well, I brought that up because I remember having like bare bones descriptions to work with. And I'm like, they wanted you to write an entire freaking paper on all of these humanities concepts based off of what you found in a specific type of work and style of work. And I didn't yeah, like it. I had to modify the assignment <laughs> because they asked me to do that too. Yeah, write an assignment on architecture or something. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, mine is going to have to be an informative essay where I can like pick an architecture style and talk about the history of it. So I picked Gothic. I wish I'd have thought that. I picked Gothic architecture. The assignment has to be modified. I don't know. Right. It's not the first time I've had to do that. There was a section in my college writing class that I took in high school where they want to talk about film analysis and talk oh, about God, I had to do that too. Mise en scene and, and symbolism. And I was like, listen, voiceover. I mean, before um, audio description. Audio description. It, maybe it's just me. It is hard for me to talk about the symbolism in film because. There are so many things that are not included in audio description. So many, because I need to get the basics across, right. the main I, idea. There's a lot of symbolism that's going to be lost on me. And even if you describe like what people are wearing and their posture and things like that, I don't think I have the same emotional understanding of it because I lost my eyesight so early. You know, maybe if I lost my eyesight later, mm -hmm. those things would have an impact on me emotionally, but it really doesn't. I don't know what colors look like. I understand mm -hmm. that they have symbolism, but I don't have an emotional connection to them the way that people who can see or who have seen color do. I just don't. And so it's hard for me to do assignments like that. Uh, the sociology class I took in college, they wanted us to do this where we talk about essentially apply sociological concepts to what we saw in the movie. And I gave up. I didn't do the final exam. I watched as much of the movie as I was allowed to. And then I emailed my professor and I was like, listen, I, I can't do this. I... I'm looking at these concepts and I'm just like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. All I have is the audio description and these conversations I've heard. And I just didn't know where to start. It was too broad of an assignment for me, I guess. And you yes. don't have to take the final one. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, all that to say, that's what makes this these descriptions so much more remarkable. Because yes. you just don't get this sort of insight and no. detail. Um, no. When you're a blind person, you just don't. Before we talk about the artwork, I wanted to read a little bit about Kahende Wiley in case you did not listen to the Black Beauty Highlight. And if you didn't, why? I'm going to link it in the episode reference section. It will be in there. Kahende Wiley is a Los Angeles native and New York-based visual artist. He made a name for himself with his naturalistic, bright-colored portraits of urban black and brown men throughout the world, often with dramatic flowery backgrounds. With black masculinity often framed as synonymous with fear and violence in the West, his portraits challenge preconceptions of black personhood 
and bring young men and other people of color into the galleries and museums we are often underrepresented in. Kehinde uses historical inspiration to create artwork that attracts Black audiences. His portraits were initially based on photos of young men on the streets of Harlem, and then later on, he brought into an international view, including models from urban landscapes throughout the world. His work quotes historical pieces, which I found it interesting, that term being applied to visual art. Because when we think of quoting, we think of words. words. We don't think of quoting with pictures, but that's what he does. Right. He does this to position Black boys and young Black men in the field of power. He often reuses recognizable art, historical images and tropes, such as portraits of Napoleon, heroic sea paintings, and traditional nudes. This is a way to decolonize the Western art canon, those are his words, and critique art historical norms. I just think about, I know someone who teaches art, and she has talked about how, you know, she teaches Black children and she has a really tough time finding Black artists. And this is part of what drove me to start doing Black Beauty highlights on visual artists. Because I'm Mm. like, they are out there. Now, the unfortunate thing is a lot of art books, art history books, they don't got us in them. Why? Because we were not in the field of power here in the West. And so, yeah, when you flip through that shit, you don't really see Black people. And if you do, they are not depicted in a positive way. And so I love what he is doing. He's taking these pieces throughout history that people have painted and reimagines it. What would this look like if it was a black guy sitting on this horse? What would it look like if we depicted some black men traveling on a ship? Also, portraying the beauty of black men, Uh I think, because that is not something that people usually do. No, and this isn't technically visual art per se what i'm about to talk about but there was a hashtag that went viral a few months ago called black men frolicking and so you've got all of these black men these giant ass adult black men (laughs) running through fields (laughs) of flowers and stuff it was great. Oh, that's interesting. I loved it. And then yeah. you got some of them. They're just like, they're these giant muscly dudes. They're like, I'm frolicking mama. It's so funny. But like, it's to redefine yes. the idea of what Black masculinity can be. Like, this doesn't detract. Exactly. Or even, you know, to take it out of the context of being something to be feared and vilified. So I love what Kehinde does with the flowers and things like that, which we'll get into. We're going to talk about five of Kehinde's pieces. So this first piece we're going to talk about is called Randerson Romualdo Cordero, painted in 2008. This portrait is of a black boy with bleach blonde hair, wearing a black baseball cap backwards and a red sleeveless tank top. He is depicted from the chest up and is gazing sideways at the viewer skeptically. The yellow background consists of brightly colored blue and red flowers with green foliage. A few of the flowers also appear in the foreground, floating in front of the boy's chest. This work is mounted in a black floral frame. Cajende completed this portrait in Brazil and drew inspiration from the ornate background from the brightly colored tablecloths found in the favelas or shanty towns inhabited by the poorer working people of Brazil. And this is something that he does a lot. He will include elements from the culture in his paintings so that the audience understands where this painting was done, the perspective of the subject of the painting. And Ronderson Romualdo Cordero is actually a little boy wildly encountered on the streets of Brazil. It's interesting because in this little context section of this description, it says... As in many countries, people living geographically and conceptually on the outskirts are thought to be unimportant and unsavory. Young black and brown men on the margins are usually considered dangerous, lazy, and violent. This painting challenges ideas and images that vilify black youth. The boy is portrayed in the same manner that famous important people, almost always white men, have historically been portrayed. The flowers behind and in front of them speak to the vulnerability, youth, and beauty of favela cultures and young black and brown men. 
I love the use of the flowers mm-hmm. with the boy. He's looking skeptical. Like, mm-hmm. what do you think he's thinking? Like, when you think of skepticism, you're like, I don't trust whatever. And is yeah. he not trusting the world he's looking out at? Is he not trusting his place in it? Is he not trusting these flowers? Is that skepticism <laughs> toward Kahende? Yes. And when people think flowers, they tend to think soft or feminine, right? There's not too many dudes who are like, yeah, my favorite flower is a daisy, you know, (laughs) like you're not going to get that too often. Uh, You do have male gardeners and they love to garden, but it's a whole different, different ballgame from somebody who's like, yeah, I plant vegetables and harvest them too. Yeah, I love sunflowers and roses for myself. Yeah, usually you you think that's a gay guy. Right. Which Kahende is a gay guy. He is. Um, they just correlation does not equal causation. It's no, just it not. correlation in this case. But we don't tend to attach flowers to men and masculinity. And even though this is a boy, and I think it's kind of maybe too early to throw masculinity at him, the fact is, is that he's a young. But you know that society boy. does. Society that. does that. They yes. start adultifying children especially black and brown children, especially black children, very early, about Mm -hmm. ages three, four. And so perhaps maybe that's just my wish that he could be the child he is, but the world wouldn't let him. So maybe masculinity's not too heavy a cloak to throw over him. But as ever with art, it's always up to you how you interpret that. And for me, I'm not really interpreting. I'm just asking more questions like, why? I'm going to go back to his facial expression being described as skeptical. I interpret that as skepticism toward Kahende Mm -hmm. because, like I said earlier, a lot of times they portray Black people in such a negative light. And I think that little boy knows that. I don't know the history he knows as a Brazilian. I don't know what he knows about the art history there and what he has seen in his part of the world, in his life. But I do think that skepticism is um, because of that. Like, why are you, what are you going to do with this picture? What else are you going to put in this picture? How are you going to portray me? Or his skepticism could be toward the flowers, because if he's modeling and, and maybe watching Kahinde paint and there's all these flowers, it's like, how does that little boy feel this? about those flowers? Because he's a tough little boy. I think I do think that because he lives in a favela. Mm-hmm. And so that toughens you up. Anybody when you live in a shanty town type of life. And so when he's putting those flowers there, I bet the little boy's like, okay, really? (laughs) You can't show people this. They're going to clown me. Yeah. It's interesting the way that he is deciding to use the flowers to portray this little boy as vulnerable because he is. He's vulnerable because he's a child and he's a child living in a shanty town. But I also like the way that Kahende is expressing essentially that there is beauty in this favela there is beauty in a shanty town because a lot of times people look at setups like that and they're like oh god like you don't want to go there that's not where you know stay away from those parts those people are you don't want to be around those people because they ain't got much so they'll probably take what you have and they think that no matter what you look like and the interesting thing about being black is you can take us as black people out of an area like that and people still think of us that way. Or they're waiting for you to do that yes. very thing. And so I love that he's like, there is beauty in this boy from living in an area like this. And there is beauty in the place he is from. And it's not just inherently dangerous and inherently bad. I love that he was inspired by that because a lot of times people choose the stuff like they have throughout art history. They choose the people who adhere to everyday beauty standards. Eurocentric. And yeah, Eurocentric beauty standards. They want to capture that and don't often take other parts of life and other parts of society that are also beautiful too. I agree. I like your take on that. So this next piece is the one that made me think of Olivia when I found it. This was painted in 2012 and it's called Judith Beheading Hollow Fernies. In this painting, a black woman with a large elaborate updo and a long blue gown is shown holding a knife in her right hand and grasping the decapitated head of a white woman by the hair. The background is 
orange and blue flowers and green foliage against a solid black backdrop. So there are various historical references for this painting. Several artists have depicted the subject matter of Judith beheading Holofernes. This is a story from the book of Judith, and it tells the tale of a woman who seduces and then beheads a male general who intends to destroy her home city. Historic paintings of this story are typically perceived as a feminist victory, a woman using her beauty, which is meant to indicate her passivity to murder the man who tries to destroy her people. This perception excludes racial consideration. Cajende's painting draws attention to the tendency in feminism to focus on white women and forget the racial disparities in power standards and beauty standards. This portrayal of a black woman as murderer of a white woman received a great deal of criticism, as you might imagine. Folks were concerned that this image encourages violence against white women and portrays black women as perpetrators of violence. Of course, there are other perspectives, including Wiley's, that consider this a symbolic threat to white supremacy. Hmm. First, it sounds like a badass um, painting. I think, especially with the sort of minimalistic feel with the solid black background and then the colorful foliage and the woman and the woman's head probably being, you know, like very much the focal point. Sounds very engaging. I can see the criticism, but that's only literally if you take the painting at face value. No painting should be taken at face value. No painting should be taken at face value. Art is almost always pictures worth a thousand words yes it encourages people to really dig deeper and the people who chose not to says a lot i mean it is shocking at first Mm -hmm. glance but i would think so is a picture of a woman grasping a man's head how is that any less shocking and so, but How it's interesting that people interpret that like people right away understand the power imbalance mm-hmm. when it's a woman grasping a man's head. Probably weren't screaming and hollering about, I mean, somebody was somewhere. Let's be honest. Oh, sure. Because anytime any people who are, who don't hold the power are in positions of power over the people who do hold the power, the people with the power get testy because they feel like, oh gosh, this could happen to me, right? And if Black women really truly were going to do anything terrible to white women, it would have already been done. A painting is not going to encourage somebody to do something like, oh, I had no intention of going and beheading a white woman or otherwise murdering a white woman. But now that I saw Kahende's picture, here I go. My plans have changed for the afternoon. It's not going to be that much of a driving force in the big scheme of things. So really ask yourself what you're getting upset about. And I do like the fact that he says his own interpretation is this is symbolic of destroying white supremacy that a lot of people tend to overlook that white women are a significant player in yes. and benefactor of. When they think white supremacy, they always... People tend to default to men and angry white men or men in power, white men in power. But they forget that these white men have mothers, sisters, daughters, wives. I mean, how we just talked about the United Daughters of the Confederacy. All white women. Yep. I think it does bring attention to how white women tend to benefit more than anyone from any movement. Yes. You talk about suffrage. White women benefited first and most from that. You talk about equality in the workplace and stuff like that. Other people did the work. White women benefited most. Even advancements in healthcare, like white women are the least likely to die in this country while giving birth. Black and brown women (laughs) don't have those same odds. So the thing that white women still benefit so much from white supremacy And this kind of calls into question, like, hey, white women are also very much in the power struggle. Not that white women need to be taken down, but white supremacy in and of itself needs to die. 
and I white women uphold it more than anybody else. And white women uphold it more than anybody else. I mean, I think even look at right now with some of these politicians that people are, you know, screen grabbing and taking clips of when they talk about like these Christian nationalist people. Lots of clips from white women. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's clips from men to white men, white pastors and stuff. I've seen that too, y'all. But they put those clips of the women in there. I think that's very intentional. These are people who perpetuate it, even though like y'all still lose. Like you're perpetuating a system that shits on you, right? <sighs> that shits on you. But as long as you get to shit on everybody else in turn, yes. I guess it doesn't matter. No. Because you give birth to when you sleep with the power that you don't actually ever get. Mm-mm. This painting and Wiley's message that he's trying to send here, it really hits me because especially people, when you take the criticism into account, it's like, man, the tough thing about being a black woman is there are very specific boxes that you are supposed to fit into when you are vulnerable and also when you're powerful. Like there are limits on how powerful we are allowed to be when you talk about what society will perceive as powerful without being violent. And I say that because we've had paintings and films and, and books about whatever, white men subjugating black men, about subjugating black people, subjugating Native American people, indigenous people, um, Hispanic people, right? Like, no, no one responds to that stuff in that way of like, oh, you're encouraging violence against those people. And that's because society thinks it's okay. And whatever, you can, you can challenge me on that if you want to, but. Society does think it's okay to um, vilify black and brown people, native people, and target them for violence. I got the challenges both because we about to be right there. I'm ten toes down on that. Come and tell me why that's not true. Tell me why when people see that stuff, read that stuff, they think that white man is a badass. Fucking Robin Hoods and shit. Ask why there are so many movies about white people enslaving people of color, but very few stories, movies and things like that about uprisings and stuff like that. Why? Yeah. Society automatically considers that us being violent. And I think it's the same with this black woman. Like she she's not considered a badass by these critics. A badass black woman is the woman who rules her house, is the woman making moves for her community or her church or whatever, right? Like, this is a lot of settings and TV shows and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, like, she can be a, a badass helping run the black community. Being the, oh, my God, what is that stupid trope? The black friend who's there to guide you and help you and support you. And, like, that's the badass black woman in these critics' eyes, right? Not the lady who is defending her community, right? Like, we don't get to be seen as a warrior and badass if we are defending our community. And I would say defending the world, right? Because if you take down white supremacy, you're, you have- A lot of have, people will be grateful. She's the savior. If she was cutting off anybody else's head that wasn't white, it wouldn't have made a blip. They wouldn't care. have, you damn right. No, I don't care what you say. Like, oh, we all, we'll never know. Oh, no, we know. Had this been her chopping off a black man's head, or another black woman's head or anything like that they'd be like "Eh." i even think if it was flipped if it was a white woman grasping the hair of a black woman i still don't think people would have people people would not have responded in this way i'm gonna say it they wouldn't have they they would have flipped and flopped well no this is actually a depiction of judith and oh so now it's judith now mm-hmm. you see the connection. But yeah. when it's a black woman and her whole and a white woman's head, all of a sudden, oh, no, we've got to worry about all the white women. And people do that whenever we, we defend ourselves. People criminalize us off the bat. That criticism speaks to a lot of nonsense that happens in society because people do that. Anytime we try to defend ourselves, we get seen as being irrational. We're being we're, we're criminalized and demonized. We are only allowed to be so powerful without it being perceived as violent. And I don't know. There's that whole white women victimization thing that we brought up in the U.S. episode. Because it's just like, man, y'all always think somebody is coming for y'all when y'all are the people who, one, are coming for us. Because a lot of the people who promote anti-blackness, too, are also white women. I mean, just listen back to our episodes on the racism in feminism. Even when... 
these black women have black children. Like white women love to throw rocks and hide their hands and be like, mm-hmm. oh, everyone's coming out to get me. Da, 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 da. And that's not yep. true. It's not. Right. Think about the um lady who was the reason why Emmett Till is dead. Not saying her name. Fuck her. She's still alive. And then they were like, well, it'd just be cruel to press charges. That little boy died hard. Even if he hadn't, she is the reason he is dead. That situation, though, is a perfect encapsulation of how it is that white women think everybody is coming for them. And then they have that get them before they get me type of attitude. Because did nothing happen to that lady. Wasn't nobody going to do nothing to her. And this boy ended up being tortured. Or even I think about the woman who called the white woman who called the cops on that black bird watcher a couple of years ago. Let's talk about it. Because she knew that if the police showed up, they would be on her side. Yes. She was going to, she played the white card. I love that he got that shit on film. I love it. Oh, knowing that, knowing that she could have somebody else do her dirty work and had that man gotten killed. It would have just been another white woman who got another black man killed. I love that she lost her job and stuff. You deserve that. Uh huh. I saw her in the news recently because she tried to file a suit talking about her job was racist for letting her go and all this other nonsense. Okay. Uh uh-uh. uh. Oh no. And see, that's what I'm talking about. Everybody will tell black people and, and people of color stop playing the victim card and all this stuff and don't Man. say it to white women. They like sipping on them white tears. That's some nonsense because nobody is coming for white women. They gonna make sure that white women are protected because like we said they are the biggest perpetuators of white supremacy if you lose your white women you got to do all that work and they do it over time to protect What's white supremacy worse is you even got some black dudes out here yes. helping them i saw a black guy not too long ago on tiktok looking dumb talking about white women were the least protected and most disrespected women in America and that we all need to protect them. And no, it wasn't a joke. Dude was actually serious. There's so many people that believe in the white woman victimization. And so here we are. Those people are the ones screaming and crying and ranting and raving about this painting, talking about this is open season on white women. Ain't gonna ever be open season on no, white women. Not. Sit down, chill out. The next painting is called Ship of Fools, painted in 2017. This painting shows four young black men on a dilapidated rowboat in the midst of a wild, choppy sea. The dark black and orange sky indicates there's an impending storm. In the center of the boat stands a single tree with green leaves. One of the men stands shirtless in blue jeans with one hand on his hip and the other hand holding up an oar. Two of the men are seated on either side of him, talking and either yelling or laughing. The fourth man stands at the back of the boat with his back toward the viewer, looking out at the rough water. Through the interplay of art historical tradition and black subjects dressed in contemporary clothing, Wiley is exploring the themes of migration and isolation in today's America. Depicting the ocean has always, in the West, been about voyage and conquest. But this work is also about migration, madness, and displacement. Wiley recognizes water as a powerful symbol for America's racial minorities. The tree that travels with the four men in this painting can be understood as a symbol of life and heritage, representing the way that displaced peoples are forced to carry their culture with them to new lands. The intent is for us to reconsider heroic paintings of the sea as sites for white explorers, heroes, and colonizers, and to refigure the ocean as a site of trauma, both historically, as in the Atlantic slave trade, and in contemporary immigration crises, causing countless horrific deaths of black and brown refugees at sea. I'm going to take this piece by piece. This one, out of all of them, grabbed me the most okay did one because i have an affinity for water i can't swim very well but water speaks to me and i think it's because that when i think water i really do see water as life-giving as water is life water is change water is inevitable it's 
the most plentiful resource on this planet. So anything water-based always grabs me. And you can get to almost anywhere on the water. I never thought about conquering, but I do always think about voyaging. Especially well, because, oceans. yeah, the way it's portrayed in paintings, though, from that little context blurb, it's about how water is portrayed in art. Mm-hmm. The dilapidated rowboat got me. This can mean so much. Are these men at sea and their souls? Are they at sea in society? And it's well, falling yeah, because apart. part of what he's trying to portray is displacement. Right. It's falling apart. Is it because have they been out here so long that what they came over on or what they're... How many trips have they made with that boat, how, huh? How many trips? I didn't think about that, actually. I was thinking more like, is it falling apart because it hasn't been able to be repaired? Do they not have the right wood, the right tools that they originally built this with, i.e. their original culture, their language? It can speak to how a lot of times we are robbed of knowledge. Yeah. You know, knowledge is kept from us. Or it's lost. And then again, water. We all know the water against rock. Water will always win. So it is the water, i.e. greater society, wearing down this boat. And you've got the man standing wearing jeans, which I tend to associate with America and the U.S. in particular sort of fashion. And he's strange. holding. Well, no, because jeans are worldwide, but it is it's a very common thing here in the U.S. Our fashion is not necessarily global. Other cultures right. have their own. So jeans is very much an American thing. So I'm thinking he's got no shirt, that part. Uh, I don't know. But the jeans made me think America and he's holding the oar in the air. Is it because he's like, why even try? There's a storm coming. The waves are rough. The boat's falling apart. Steer what? Is he at sea within himself? Is he holding the tool that could save him? Or, you know, what does that oar mean? And they've got the two guys on either side of him. It doesn't say they have oar, so they're just... uh. <laughs> They're talking or laughing. Are they ignoring it? Have they already given up? Or back to the guy with the oar, is he thinking about doing something? Also, most jeans don't do well in water. Is he going to drown? And you've got the guy whose back is to the viewer, and he's looking at the water. Is he looking at where they came from? Is he thinking about jumping overboard and swimming for it? I think I like things I'm noticing. I like things that make me question and spin off in a million different directions because they're even Kahenda, if we talk to him, he could tell us what he meant. But even still, our interpretation would be different from even what he says. Keeping this context blurb in mind, thinking about the concepts he's trying to capture here, migration, isolation, displacement, madness. To me, the madness is represented by the water. Um, and yeah, you can say that's representative of greater society too. And what we have to be up against as as black people or what people have to be up against as migrants dealing with displacement and relocation, especially since this blurb is talking about how water is a site of trauma, right? This is one of the things that Kahende wants to represent. That boat to me represents resilience. You know, you've got to be resilient. That's one of the things is that's often associated with being a, a woman or like being a black person, being a black woman, uh -huh. right? And you definitely have to be in order to relocate, whether you're doing it voluntarily or not, especially when you think about people who are refugees. Uh -huh. I mean, resilience is important. And if you don't got it, you're gonna, you're gonna get it. Also, too, they said it's dilapidated, but they didn't say it was sinking. Yeah. So... That also, too, embodies resilience. I didn't even think about that part. Mm -hmm. The guy who's shirtless with his hand on his hip and holding up the oar, to me, that represents waiting. He's just like, all right, so we just got to ride it out type of uh, attitude. The shirtless kind of makes me think he's not as concerned, maybe, as his shipmates there. There's something that Kahende's trying to communicate to us with this dude with the shirt off because the other guys are not. And so the shirtless man is, um, he's experienced this, you know, I this is nothing new to him. So we just got to ride it out. I'm not going to bother trying to steer this ship because 
you know, what's the point? I could have my oar ripped away from me by the water. And sometimes you do. You do just have to ride it out and not fight it. You know, you have to. It's like a pick your battles type of thing. That's a happier idea than what I was thinking. <laughs> I only think that because he's got no shirt on. That is what that makes something. me think he's, you know, he's skilled at steering boats. He's done this before. Um, he is a seafaring gentleman. Yeah, it is a more happy view of him. His shipmates who are sitting there laughing or yelling or whatever, it's tough to interpret that. To me, that's more ambiguous because there's different ways even to interpret yelling because it's like, are we yelling because we're talking over the water? Right. Or I'm trying to think of like, why would they be laughing? Or maybe they think like it's a nervous laughter. I mean, it doesn't go into facial expressions here. And so that no. makes it really difficult to interpret. I mean, they could be experienced too. It's just like, okay, we just sit here and try to distract each other a while. Mm -hmm. We could potentially be flipped over in, in this rowboat. The guy whose back is to us in this painting, though, is like when you talk about trying to portray isolation. You can consider this entire scene as isolating, right? Because it's just these four dudes on a boat in the middle of the choppy water. But to me, the one who's truly isolated is that guy standing with his back to us, staring out at the water. To me, he's concerned. He might be worried. He might be like, man, I never should have left. Like, uh, uh, he might be feeling sick. There's things we don't know about him because we can't see his face. And then the tree. I forgot the tree. Well, yeah, because it's very out of place in this picture, right? A tree mm -hmm. on the damn boat in the middle of this choppy sea, like. And it's green with leaves. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything else on this boat. You know, we only know what we got in this description. But I'm just like, if a tree is the only luggage they brought with them, that is a very powerful thing. And to me, the tree embodies hope, right? Yep. Trees get through a storm and are still standing afterward. Or even uh, these are four men who can spread their seed and grow, continue on their their lines, their cultures through procreation. Yeah, man, there's a lot of symbolism in that tree that he put there and the fact that it's green. Um, With leaves. And, you know, usually he does the floral. He incorporates flowers and things. I mean, that wouldn't be in place here. But hey, neither, neither, is, a is, damn, a tree. neither is a damn tree. <laughs> exactly. But I just find it interesting that that's the element. Like he decided to pack a big punch with that tree traveling with them. Green is growth. Green is growth. And like the ability to move forward and the fact that like, yes, we are displaced. We are isolated, but we still we keep on keeping on. We still here. Yeah. All right. Ready for the next one? Okay. This painting is a portrait of Barack Obama that was done in 2017. In October of 2017, Wiley was selected by former U.S. President Barack Obama to paint his official portrait to appear in Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery Americans' President's Exhibition. The painting was unveiled on February 12, 2018. It depicts Obama sitting in a wooden chair, which appears to float among bright green foliage, interspersed with chrysanthemums, jasmine, and African blue lilies. Obama wears a dark blue suit and a white collared shirt with the top two buttons undone and no tie. His arms are crossed with his elbows resting on his knees. His wedding ring is visible on his left ring finger. He looks directly out at the viewer. The foliage in the background that Wiley selected was his way of charting Obama's path on Earth. Each of the flowers has significance, with the chrysanthemum being the official flower of Chicago, did not know that, yeah. where the Obamas lived for several years. Jasmine represents Hawaii, Obama's birthplace and the place he grew up. And African blue lilies symbolize the president's heritage. Here we go again with all of the symbolism. I love the fact that he is sitting in a wooden chair. Wooden is very natural uh remember that whole birther bs and they were like is he actually an american citizen like yeah he is so it could be like they don't say what type of wood but he's american made or american born rather they talk about why they chose why he chose those flowers so we won't get into that but that does bring kind of nicely tie in obama's upbringing and what got into this point the chair, he looks to be floating. So it's like, is he being held up by all the things and all the people that came before him from these places? There is the 
white shirt with the two top buttons undone and no tie says relaxed at ease to me everybody you know most people consider obama to be you know like a real chill really down to earth yeah really down to earth if you are relaxed and you're like yeah he's still wearing a suit he know how to handle business but right now he's not doing that and Mm -hmm. i love the fact that his wedding ring is showing so it's like he's proud of that yes he's proud of his relationship with his wife what up michelle and so he's not afraid to display that this one you can to me is probably the most straightforward one of them all because it's kind of like what you see is what you get could you dig deeper sure right the symbolism is in those flowers i think it's a symbol to to obama actually like a message to him yeah you made it up here man but don't forget where you came from and even to the audience like when you do make it to the top or you do make it to a higher position don't forget where you come from like don't forget what made you what got you here don't leave that behind you i'm of two minds about that Mm -hmm. yes i do think you should remember how you got here because you weren't always at the top sure but i feel that that is a request often most made to black people it's like a kind of a burden placed upon those who elevate. And it's like, it is a thing in a black community where don't get a big head about Don't stuff. get so too proud of yourself. Right. So we will cut you down or don't forget, you used to be out here on a struggle bus, just like all of us. And it's like, don't start acting like you better than everybody else. Well, I don't think he ever was, though. I, was, I think what I've heard about his childhood is that not sure he was on the struggle bus. He wasn't necessarily on the struggle bus, but they wasn't like living lavish. But I don't think they were like. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that he had a silver spoon type of upbringing, but he did have some privileges that most don't. That is true. So I don't know. That kind of always bothers me. Maybe it's just a, a me thing. And see, to me, it's very important, especially when you think about somebody making it to be the president. Right. It's very easy for people to get out you know, he left Chicago. It's very easy for people to reach a certain status and distance themselves from people who are not in their circle, who are not of that same class, of that same socioeconomic status, of that same caliber, right? Like all your friends are judges and senators and doctors type of stuff. People who are well-to-do like you are and not being as in touch as they used to be with like, when you think about places like Hawaii and Chicago, certain parts It's like you represent that as well. Don't forget those people. That's more of what I internalize when I Mm -hmm. see this portrayal because he's being portrayed as floating. He's in a big place. He's of importance. He this is definitely positioning him in the field of power when you talk about artwork, achieving that. It could also be that he's just out of reach to those people because when you're floating, you're not really connected to anything and those flowers are around him. So can they still reach him or is is it just like he used to be one of us and now look at him? Or is it like reach for the star sort of thing? Like we could be like him too because he is us. Right. There's different ways to perceive that. This next painting was done in 2008. I actually saved this last for a couple of different reasons. One, I didn't want to talk about this right after we just talked about a black little boy because this describes a man in a more like sensual, sexual way. Mm-hmm. And also I wanted to establish how you can portray men as powerful in different ways. This painting is called, oh God, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this. Come on, let's see what your French for- Forgive does. me. I don't know anything about French. Let me try. I'll destroy it. Femme it wouldn't be Piquet, right? Or is it K? Piquet. Femme Piquet, Paun Serpent. I'm sorry, everyone. That was terrible. In this enormous painting, a young black man wears sneakers, blue jeans, provocatively pulled down slightly to reveal his white underwear, an orange t-shirt, lime green hooded sweatshirt, and an orange baseball cap tilted to the side. He is reclining on a wooden bed covered in a white sheet. Gazing over his shoulder sensuously at the viewer, a come-hither stare. The background is deep blue with pale pinkish-beige flowers, some of which emerge into the foreground, falling over the man and bed. The historical inspiration for this painting was an artist's, I'm not going to say this guy's name, (laughs) an artist's 1847 sculpture of the same name. 
which depicted a woman in the process of dying from a venomous snake bite. At the time, that sculpture was controversial because people saw the woman's writhing and contorting as more erotic and sensual than indicative of impending death. Maybe he was trying to send different messages. We're going to focus on Kahende reusing that art, though. <laughs> well, in French, they call orgasm the little death. I think it's like la petite mort. Okay, I didn't know that. that. Yeah, so maybe there was some overlap. There are people just freaky. They want to blame other people for their inappropriate thoughts. You're making us thinking like about sex. <laughs> How terrible. Oh, no. Oh, no. Not sex. <laughs> Anything but that. <laughs> this one. When I first saw it, I said, nah, nah, he wearing blue jeans. Provocatively pulled down to show his white underwear. He's sagging. And then I was like, he's laying in the bed. I was like, oh, he not sagging. <laughs> but I love the colors. There's so many lime green, orange. You can see his draws, as we like to say in a uh, Black community. <laughs> and he is definitely looking at you like, you know you want some of this. In this case, this is not a, are we referring to the snake bite? Which snake are we talking, huh? So maybe he wants the snake. I do like the fact that he has the flowers spilling. Coming out of the background. Yes. Like the way he did that in that painting, man. Exactly. So that's a, that 3D kind of look yeah. is what I'm assuming they're saying that expresses the artist's talent. But they're spilling over the man in the bed. And we all know, you know, the trope of romance with the, it's always rose petals. They don't say these are roses, but mm -hmm. rose petals on the bed and stuff like that. So maybe that's supposed to be sort of reminiscent of that, maybe. Or masculinity can be softer in an intimate setting. It doesn't have to be aggression. Mm -hmm. uh, as a person, the dominator of sex uh, he can also be, I don't like the term submissive, but he can be the dumb. recipient. He can be the recipient. One thing I liked about this is his portrayal of a black man as sexy, and it's not in this animalistic way. Right. That has been previously, people have done that to our men in the past. And mm -hmm. um, still do today, actually. Sorry, I'm just going to say, like, even in porn. I mean, the truth. Or like erotic literature. And a lot of black men take pride in that dehumanization because they don't see it as such. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the first things that I appreciated most about this work. And also how he can be sexy without even trying. He can be in his street clothes and be sexy. Oh, I didn't think about that. Because he's got the hoodie on and everything. The I'm just hoodie, like, the baseball cap. It's interesting because he decided to, like, yes, he has that provocative look on his face, but also the way he decided to use his clothes to draw you in is he's showing his underwear. And he doesn't have to do that. He could have his shirt off like the guy in the Ship of Fools portrait. Mm -hmm. He could have, you know, his shirt pulled up. That'd be really <laughs> um, provocative, I guess. Or he could be laying on the bed in boxers, right? There's lots of ways we use clothes to indicate to somebody what we're in the mood for mm -hmm. in the bedroom. And um, it's kind of like a, what do you want to do to me <laughs> type <laughs> of pose when he's got all his clothes on like that and just his underwear showing. And so that does indicate to me too that like he's kind of the recipient like yes i'm drawing you in but also how are you gonna service me i like that the man his clothing just made me think that way a lot of times nudeness nakedness is portrayed as vulnerable i also when we're talking about being intimate having all your clothes on is a different type of vulnerability because it's like how do you want to have me i'm gonna let you choose that so if you think i look sexy with this hat if you think this hat like accentuates my face or something right like He's giving you different ways to not objectify him, but mm -hmm. you do get to pick what's going to make you look desirable to me when I walk in this room and start engaging with you type of stuff. <laughs> right. Or even I still, even in my hat, in my hoodie, in my jeans, but I still fuck the shit out of you. Right. Yes. Or I'm always already, you know, no matter what I'm wearing. Yeah. I'm so always it could be. I like that. I didn't think about that. Yeah. The flowers are very 
they always speak. There's always a message he wants with these flowers. I agree with your perception of masculinity can be softer. And there is a vulnerability to this man still. Like I said, he can be vulnerable with his clothes on. And and black men are vulnerable with their clothes on. I think that's the other aspect to it, right? Because black men are not seen as vulnerable. Black people are not seen as vulnerable, but it's but like black men especially. And portraying him as sexy and like he's given you that look. There's a vulnerability and a power to it at the same time. And the same can be said for sex in general. Sure. I like that that power is portrayed here, too. And that's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. Like, that's why I put this portrait after Obama's, because this is a different type of powerful is Mm. his allure, his attractiveness and his power over you, the viewer or, you know, whoever it is. You make you think thoughts. Yeah. I do think it's interesting, too, that Kahende decided to quote a piece where, the you know, the woman was dying and put a man in her place. I don't see death in this picture. And I don't think he intended that. I just think okay. it's it's interesting that he quoted a piece with yeah, someone I dying. Agree. I was wondering if I was That he reused something. it, right? Because it's mm-hmm. got the same title of that piece. So that's the quote there. But it's interesting that he reused that image and, like, there's a man in her place I don't know, speaking more to what critics thought that woman looked like at first glance, right? They thought that it was a more sensual photo. And so he's like, yeah, let's just do it then. Let's Mm -hmm. make it a sensual photo and get you to think about sensuality in a different way. I don't think people equate men with sensuality. I think they tend to equate women. Of course, right? Especially when you talk about Mm -hmm. art history. In art Mm -hmm. history, the people who are usually subjects in a sexual way are women. Yeah, yeah, men don't men are more portrayed as powerful in a commanding way. And that's why I think it's so cool how he's like, well, you're still powerful reclined in bed with your pants partially pulled down. Like you're still powerful in that position as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think and you're talking about the way Kahende likes to critique art norms. He's critiquing a couple of different art norms, the way that women usually are these subjects. When we, when we want to portray sensuality, the way that, you know, men are usually portrayed as powerful in this very specific way throughout art history. So again, let's turn that on its head. And he really accomplishes that here. I would say he does. This one, second to the Judith beheading hollow fernies, this one grabbed me right away. I really like that. Like you can be sexy in your street clothes type of stuff. And he did, he decided against like, He's not dressed up either because that's another way you can use clothing is like, okay, I put on my best for you and you don't have to. You can be sexy in this very casual way. And there's different types of sexy. Of course. Like uh, me personally, like I said, I love all the colors that he's wearing and it's Mm -hmm. very indicative of young black culture. I don't know so much anymore because this was 14 years ago, but fashion's always changing. But he reminds me of Skittles. Right. He's got orange and green. And I do personally, I like that look on black guys. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, hell yeah, that's sexy as hell. (laughs) I do love the way that he does portray that and that there is not just a three piece suit. Sexy comes in many varieties. Man, he did it. He did such a good job of like communicating, of sending that message, just using an entirely different image. We give you your flowers. Yes, we do give you your flowers. Kahende Wiley. I'm going to link to what I'm reading from in the show notes. Of course, I always do. But check him out. He's on YouTube. You can watch him talk about his artwork. You can read these descriptions and look yourself. Check this out. And if you're yes. into if you're into art, you know, share it with other people. Get the word out. Yeah. Share this episode with other people. Please and thanks. This is Intersectional Insights. If you like our content, leave us a rating or review to help the podcast. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions, you can email us, intersectionalinsights at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.